Thailand, where she practiced meditation with two highly esteemed disciples of Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Anand and Ajahn Gamha. So welcome. Thank you. Could everybody hear me? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a request. Could we make it a little bit more intimate? Feel free to bring the chairs up and if you want to move up. Just a a nicer feeling of the Sangha. Thank you. And how long do you want me to talk? Okay. Much better, much better. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's a very sweet feeling to be here in such a great space. I'm really happy for you. Not only do you have a great teacher, Gil, but you also have a great space. Um, so this evening I'd like to uh, share with you some of the experiences I had uh, living um, in a monastery, two different monasteries, while I was practicing in Asia this past year. Actually, I think the last time I spoke here I was just on my way, so I just got back. So it was very nice to do full circle. Um, I think it's important to talk about monastic life and what that's like because that is the roots of our tradition that we practice here and although we've made many adaptations in the West to what meditation looks like it's really important to remember that where our tradition comes from and how it's traditionally practiced so when we make the adaptations at least we understand what the foundations are or I should say or what I understand them to be um, I wasn't ordained when I was in Asia. Um, there are nuns uh, who are on eight or ten precepts, um, but I did not. I, I practiced as a layperson in the monastery for that time. Um, so I'd like to just give you an idea of what that living was like and what it was like to be with two great meditation masters and um, some of the um, insights that I had in terms of how it helped my practice and some of the customs and traditions that I learned that were very helpful to me and that I'll share with you and that could possibly be helpful to you as well. Um, I was lucky enough to be invited to spend the Rains Retreat with uh, Tan Ajahn Anand who was one of Ajahn Chah's most esteemed disciples. He's very well known in Thailand for his power of metta and for his mystical powers, his ability to read minds, past lives, and um, understand people through his insights into your colors, your around you, your auras, your the way you walk, the way you eat. Kind of one of these amazing minds that 
some days you're happy he understands and can see through you and other days it's like <laughs> does he have to know everything that's going on um, so I was invited to spend the rains retreat the rains retreat is a traditional time in Asia when the monks make a commitment to stay in one monastery for three months under the guidance and directions direction of one teacher and it's always held during the monsoon season um, and the reason why the Buddha did that was because during the monsoon season there's so many bugs and insects that emerge because of the rains that the Buddha wanted to be sure the monks were able to limit the uh, harm or damage they did on the earth during that time so the reasoning was if you stayed in one place and practiced through stillness um, through sitting meditation or just on your walking path um, that you would limit the harm that you did and you would also increase your your meditation practice so that custom has been alive and well for the past 2550 or 60 years and all over Asia monks and nuns make a commitment to stay in one place during that time and it's, it runs from the full moon of July to the full moon of October and it's celebrated in, in Thailand and Southeast Asia by great feasts at the monastery and um, in the evening special chanting in a Vien Tien, Vien Tien which is a circumambulation around the temple with uh, incense, candles and flowers chanting the qualities of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha very very powerful beautiful under the full moon um, and many people from the village come and follow the monks uh, in the circumambulation around the temple and um, do chanting and as a way of kind of opening up the rains retreat and the community comes and brings an enormous amount of supplies everything from light bulbs to flashlights to um, grass mats to um, chocolate and cheese some of the allowables uh, medicines coca-cola um, vast amounts of supplies uh, for the monastery so you don't have to worry about the necessities of the requisites coming because you know the monastery is kind of like stacked up and then at the end of the rains retreat the full moon of October the same thing happens the village comes and offers an enormous amount of, the, uh, of supplies to replenish what's uh, been used you know, again soap q-tips washing up liquid um, you know the storeroom of the monastery kind of looks like Costco <laughs> it's amazing you know just enormous amounts of toilet paper and sponges and just everything that you'd need to keep uh, a monastery and the monks and nuns going for that time um, so I was invited by Ajahn Anand to, to go to one of his small branch monasteries uh, which only had seven of us I was the only woman and there were six monks and um, we were expected to follow a fairly rigorous program during that three months of getting up about 3.30 between 3 and 3.30 in the morning going to the morning chanting and meditation till about 5 or 5.30 um, and then at around 6 when the dawn came up the monks would go on Bindabat which is the alms gathering and I would stay behind and um, they'd come back the alms food would be sorted out 
on different uh, trays. There was a vegetarian tray. There's a tray for curries. There's a tray for noodles. There's a tray for desserts. There's a tray for beverages. And then um, about 7.30 or 8, uh, um, the food that comes back, as I said, is organized. And then I, as the woman or as a layperson, would re-offer it to the monks. Um, the monks sit on, according to seniority, there's a Buddha image and then a Jananan and then the abbot of the uh, branch monastery and then the, the monks, according to seniority, and then me. <laughs> Not, I didn't sit in the line. Women are very separated. Uh, and then the monks would eat their food. It, the food would get passed along on a kind of trolley. And uh, then I would bring it out to the kitchen and I would eat my meal in silence. Uh, sometimes there'd be lay people who would come and we'd all eat together, but primarily um, I would eat alone and then wash up afterward. And the day, um, basically from maybe 9 or 9.30 in the morning till 3, was spent in my kuti, which is a meditation hut um, that I had at the edge of the forest and would be spent alternating um, sitting and walking until about 3 o'clock and then there was a work period uh, from about 3 to 4 or 4.30 gardening, cleaning up the kitchen, cleaning out the refrigerator. By the way, the kitchen was basically a cement floor with a a sink on the ground, kind of an indent. It's, It's like if this was the floor, if this was the cement floor, and then there was an indentation, this would be the sink, and then there was a spigot. So, and but there was a refrigerator, and there was electricity, and there was a table uh, for chopping things. Sometimes, uh, if apples came in or um, uh, things came in to be cooked, like eggs, you know, I would use a small gas stove. Um, the rule the Buddha set down is that the monks have to go on Bindabad every day, by the way, and no food is allowed to be kept overnight. So whatever wasn't eaten, people in the village would come and take it and they would distribute to the hospital, they distribute it to workers at the monastery or to schools. And then it starts all over again every day. And the, the rule that the Buddha set down was so that the monks wouldn't uh, isolate themselves and just hang out in the forest, that they had to every day go on Bindabat as a reminder of the natural interdependence that we have with each other, that the monks inspire us from a spiritual point of view, but uh, the monks also depend on us for um, the the requisites, the requisites being food, lodging, uh, robes, and medicine. Uh, During the work period, getting back to that, there was... um, the monks would sweep, and uh, there's always chores to do around a monastery, cleaning up. Uh, the monks are allowed to sweep, but they're not allowed to garden, because again, in gardening, you might harm bugs. And their vinaya, their code of ethics, is so strict that they're not allowed to do that. I, I did. I did a lot of gardening. Uh, and then at about 4 the or 4.30, the monks would have tea together, but I... Sometimes I was invited, most of the time I wasn't. I had tea alone. And then we'd gather again about 7 or 7.30 for evening meditation and chanting. Um, so it was a very rigorous, very physically demanding schedule from, as I said, 3 or 3.30 until maybe 10 or 11 in the evening. 
um, and following the drama of the day, you know, getting up before sunrise and then seeing the sunrise, seeing the monks kind of go off into the forest with their arms, bowls, barefoot, and then having them come back, you know, um, with the with their food, organizing it, offering it, eating, cleaning up, meditating, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, chores, tea, chanting. Um, you know, a really gorgeous rhythm is established not just in your um, in your practice, but in your body, because your body begins to feel, you know, the the rhythm of the day. And the, the drama of nature as the sun comes up and as it goes down. And I really began to feel in a very visceral way why the Buddha said it was so important to practice in a forest, you know, that the, because the forest is a mirror of nature, of the cycles of life and death, of, you know, rising and passing away, and of, you know, the suffering, you know, that you see in the little animals and the, and you know, just people, insects, and how all beings kind of fighting for their lives, their small little lives, and the the um, the sila, the virtue of non-interference with nature. Um, there was a pond in the back of the monastery, and the and the abbot used to feed the fish at the end of the day. Um, some of the fruit, fruit, or some old bread. And uh, out of his metta for the fish, you know, wanting the fish to be a lot, you know, to be fed and well looked after. And, um, you know, there was such a sweetness to being around these virtuous people who lived this life of non-interference and who respected the rhythms of nature. Um, you know, I, I, for myself, I really hadn't lived that closely to nature. I hadn't really had that opportunity, um, you know, briefly camping and going to Yosemite and um, hiking and things like that. But never have I ever had that opportunity to really put myself, by making a commitment to the precepts, to put myself in such a harmonious view with the nature that was around me. Um, I followed eight precepts. The, the first, you know, we all take and follow are um, the commitment not to hurt or harm any living, living being. And believe me, there's lots of living beings. <laughs> During the rainy season, uh, I saw, from, you know, a snake lived in, there was a, I had this kuti, and around the kuti is like a little moat. So the um, bugs, and, for the ants, which there are millions of in Asia, don't get in and up, which they do anyway. And then a snake lived in it, and an owl lived in my tree. Um, so you don't hurt or harm any living being. You don't take what's not given. Um, you avoid any kind of sexual misconduct, which in a monastery means no sexual activity at all, and no touching. You can't. Um, women can touch each other, but you don't touch any men, or I mean specifically monks for sure, but men. Even if a man comes, you don't shake hands or anything like that. No touching. Um, and you don't uh, use any kind of false or harmful speech and uh, take any kind of drinks and drugs which cloud the mind. The sixth, seventh, and eighth precepts is you don't eat any solid food after noon. Um, 
So you eat one meal a day. As I said, that was about any time between 7.30 and 8.30 in the morning. And you don't do any adornment. So you, you can't uh, wear makeup. You're not supposed to wear jewelry. I, I, I wore my watch and my ring, but wedding band. And, uh, but you really, I, I probably shouldn't have, but I did. But when it got so hot, when it got to be about 100, I had to take my rings and my watch off because my, my body swelled so much. It was very painful. So no mirrors in the monastery. Um, and then you, you also make a commitment to sleep on the floor and not sleep on any high or luxurious bedding. So the outer life of the monastery is pretty austere. <laughs> So there's no real comfort, you know, there's no couch to snuggle up on, uh, you know, with a good book, and there's no bed you can look forward to, you know, getting into at the end of a hard day looking at your mind. Um, there's, no, there's no chairs really to sit on. There's one or two plastic chairs around, but they weren't very comfortable. Um, so the message is you've really got to find comfort inside yourself, you know, that the external comfort just is not there. So it's physically a mirror of the fact that you have to constantly be looking within for any kind of softness because the outer world is pretty darn hard edged. <laughs> um, but I was lucky because I was around Tana Jananand, who was really such an incredible uh, living example of a pure mind, Bori Suit of Metta. You know, he's, his practice is so advanced and his heart is so pure that when you're around him, you know, he just emanates the heart of loving kindness. And I've never had it, I've never had that opportunity before to be around, you know, a living example of what the Buddha taught and what the Buddha asked us to aspire to, which is to uproot greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds. And so when you meet somebody who's actually done that, and is a living example of the fruits of the practice. I can only tell you, it just, you know, it changed changed me in a very deep and visceral visceral way, because I just hadn't I just hadn't been exposed or in connection to a being, you know, who had such loving kindness and such compassion, without any sentimentality at all. You know, his just his whole being was metta. His whole being was karuna and wisdom, but not, but as I said, not sentimental because he because he was basically rooted in wisdom, you know, and and it lives the life of understanding that life is characterized by unsatisfactoriness and permanence and permanence and emptiness. Um, so his 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 stainless being. You know, just inspired me to uh, inspired me to ground myself as often as I could remember in this very moment. You know that he's done everything that we have to do uh, in order to liberate our hearts and minds. You know, he didn't skip over any steps. Um, he's just a living example of somebody who's very advanced on the path. Um, and so when I saw him every day, um, and when I thought of him, and when I still do, you know, my heart glows and sings uh, because I just am so um, 
inspired that a being could walk on the earth so lightly and so virtuously and so wisely and so kindly um, by the very practice that, that, that you and I do every day. Um, and that his advancement has, has changed lives because what these monasteries are, you know, they make a commitment to help people who make the commitment to them is that they lead these monasteries, beings like Tanajananan and Ajahn Ganha, the second master I studied with, they open monasteries and people come and ordain with them and make commitments to them. And that's what they do. They lead people, they become guide, you know, they're their guiding teacher to help liberate other beings. And to, to and to think that, you know, as we sit here in, in Redwood City, you know, that there's monastery Ajahn, Ajahn Chah has 300 monasteries in Thailand, or I think all, mostly in Thailand, but all over the world, where um, beings are committed to liberation. And Ajahn Chah's disciples, you know, have strong enough in, minds and hearts to attract monks and nuns, mostly Asian, some Americans, some Westerners, um, who make a full-time job, that's their job, is to, is to purify their heart and mind and then to go out and teach other people the Buddha's way and to inspire them. And they do because the, in Asia, it's important for you to know and, and for us to remember here that all the teachings are given 100% freely. You know, when you go to a monastery, you, you cannot buy anything. There's nothing to buy. If, you know, you, you are given everything. The only way you can give anything is if it's a donation. If you need clothes, if you need books, if you need tapes, if you need cute, you know, Q-tips for your ears, if you need so anything is given, and everything is given. So there's nothing you can buy at a monastery. The only thing you can do is let go and give. And I was so inspired by that. I was so inspired by the power of goodness and generosity. You know that um, that that the practice is so revered in Asia. You know uh, it's so highly regarded as as a beautiful way, beautiful and meritorious way to spend a life. That there are thousands of monasteries in Asia. Ajahn Chah has about 300 of them, but thousands where you can just go and walk in, and that's it. That's it. You just you just go and. They show you a kuti and they tell you where the teacher is and what time the meal is and that's it. You know, whatever you need, you just say and you and you get it. And when you leave, if you want to give a donation, you do. And if for whatever reason you don't or you can't, you don't. And the system just goes on the goodness and generosity of people believing in the teacher and believing in the Buddhist the Buddha's teachings and the path. So it just cracked my heart open, you know, that this this was given to me, um, and seeing the system in operation, where sometimes I would go out and offer alms food, and the monks walk in meditation, walking meditation, their eyes are, are down, are kind of they're cast down. There's no eye-to-eye -eye contact, and the people in the village line up every morning at dawn, you know. There's probably about half a million monks in Asia. They're all fed on generosity. 
and they walk through in a line and people bow to the monks and you know without making eye contact spoon into the bowl um, and when the bowl's full it's dumped out into a truck usually or a, an assistant kind of takes because they're given so much food truckloads of food sometimes um, because it's considered a merit, merit to offer food to, to monks and nuns or holy people uh, and there's no eye contact there's no exchange there's, there's respect for the monks that are meditating and it's good enough that you you make the offering to the sangha um, without anything in return sometimes monks offer a blessing it depends on the the custom of the monastery sometimes you're offered a blessing sometimes the monk just after you've given it they'll just walk away so um, you know the opportunity to practice in a Buddhist country you know was so um, besides the schedule and fitting into the rhythms of the, of the monastic life to, to feel the support. Can you imagine Redwood City getting up in the morning mm. and lining up to give food to the holy people uh, as a way of starting the day? You know, I think of the way I start, start my day ha- for half my life, more than half my life, is what am I going to wear? What's the weather? Is it going to be traffic? You know, the, all the hassles of the day. They wake up and think, you know, got to put the rice on. The monks are coming. Mm. You know, it's a whole different orientation and you see these little babies, you know, six months old, and they grab a fistful of rice and they let go and everybody claps, you know. And it's from the babies to the grandmothers, you know, with these hunchbacks and people feeding the monks all their, you know, their whole life, every day. And it's a whole community thing, you know. And one of the places I practice, you know, they'd say, Pra Matung, that means the monks are coming. And everybody gets, you know, crouches down. And so it's a whole feeling in the towns and the villages this is what you do you know they the monks lift us up and provide spiritual guidance and spiritual um, inspiration and then the you know we offer them the, the physical um, um, requisites that they need in order to uh, work on liberating their hearts of greed hatred and delusion so um, one of the other things that it's really important to communicate about monastic life that I had no idea until I lived in one for almost a year is that the, the meditation teacher is like you know what we consider you know the, the local the, the local therapist or the local priest you know we don't we, in the West and I'm speaking as a psychologist you know we have a whole cult around confidentiality and privacy and you, know, you go to a doctor these days and they give you like 18 pages of your you know your privacy and you know laws and rights and go to a therapist and you're you know you're as a psychologist you know you're bound by confidentiality unless someone's going to murder somebody or threaten to kill themselves you cannot you know to tell anybody what's happens in that relationship well you, I, you know I can go to jail so could probably many of you in the room so we're talking privacy you know is, is a very western notion and it really stokes the sense of self that we have because in Asia what happens is the teacher would sit here and there'd be a group of people this big or 70 or 100 people or maybe there'd be a handful but this, this would be a common crowd and you come and you just say to the teacher you know my husband has a lover or my son is a gambler or you know um, I just lost my job or you know, I'm having trouble, um, you know, in 
uh, you know, with my health, whatever it is, it's just it's just out there, and there's no confidence, <laughs> you know, there's no confidentiality. It's not the same because there's an understanding in the culture that there's dukkha, there's suffering, but it's not mine. And I was like shocked. I was like embarrassed. It could all be translated to me. I was like, oh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be listening. And I'm not gonna. You know, I'm gonna. You know, I'm gonna. I'm gonna pretend I didn't hear it. And I'm not gonna pretend that it's being translated. It's like, and it took me months to get over the fact that this, this is how it happens. So it's not one on one. You pay your hundred and twenty dollars for the therapist, and it's you know, you, you have your your confidential therapy session that's kept a secret unless you know unless you're a danger to anybody and you go to jail if you break it and nothing like that it's just out there and you know when you are around this enough and you just hear the cycle of dukkha you know the illness the, the grief the you know relationship problems the um, um, you know the the angst of human the human condition. It changes your it changes your relationship to it because you realize, you know, it's just all the one unhappy family of dukkha. You know, it's that's what it is. You know, it's just in different. It's just different mouths saying it. But you know, the person who's talking about illness and death and grief. You know, it's just a matter of time when that's on our lips, right? Just a matter of time. It's not like we're going to escape it. And the person that's discussing. You know, family problems or betrayals or gossip or you know whatever the hurts of the heart are. Again, it's just you know who hasn't who hasn't felt that, who hasn't experienced it. And if it's not your specific story, it's good enough as a story of hurt, you know, or anger or disappointment or you know fill in the blank. So it was tremendous learning for me that you know there isn't that that all the ways that I've been trained um, to protect you know, my own self and the self of others who've entrusted me you know, has caused a lot of pain and, and, and has only kind of stoked the illusion that I'm somehow special or different and these problems have to be isolated from the community at large in this, you know, in this one-on-one situation where I learned so much just by sitting there and listening to people's dukkha. You know, uh, and then le- listening to the master and what what he would say to them in response, and being able to be in his presence when people would talk about the pain of grief, the pain of loss, the pain of disappointment, um, the pain of life, and their response of listening carefully and taking it in and giving their wisdom, whatever that was to help these people who would bow to them and make offerings and then they would leave and sometimes you'd see them again and sometimes you wouldn't uh, and it was really a way it was such a practice in and of itself and by the way it wasn't any hours on the door and no appointments just all day long people would come basically these masters have no private life they're basically you know they're, the village supports them or the towns they live in and and that's their that's their responsibility back. So someone dies, they do the funeral. You know, there's a problem, they go to the hospital. Um, that's what they do. It's, it's quote their job. Their job is to liberate, help liberate the monks and nuns, people who come and study under their guide, practice under their guidance. And it's also their responsibility to help the people who 
who offer them the requisites every day. So um, I'm here to tell you that when seeing the system in operation, you know, was really a life-changing opportunity for me to understand the uh, machinery of the practice, you know, how the machine really works, and then the the outcome, you know, the fruits of the uh, of how it happens, and the um, the the rhythm of of monastic life and and how it impacts you know it's um it's quite a gorgeous way to live you know so uh virtuously under the guidance of a wise being but it's also i could just and i was practicing as a laywoman you know it was the hardest thing i've ever done physically as i explained you know there was just no comfort <laughs> no comfort at all and mentally you know all the demons come out they actually the masters actually laugh and they call it that a wat monastery is actually a hospital wrong payoban <laughs> they say it's a hospital for your defilements your kilesas and that's what happens you know you go there and you know you have to look at your mind all these many hours with virtually no distractions you know the sense world is yeah. not available to you in terms of radio tv simple conversations etc um because you're on your own not that we could you could talk but you're not supposed to you know chat it up you know <laughs> um so to be thrown on your own mind in a forest where there's no comfort you know is a very difficult thing to do so as i said to both of my teachers when i came and paid respects and bowed to them when i first came I felt very different when I came and paid respects and said goodbye because you really you really understand you know how hard and demanding it is to really change the mind to change the heart you know it's it's <laughs> it's a formidable thing to do so when you're sitting at the feet of someone who's done it and you bow to them and you make offerings to them you know you real the bow takes on a whole different meaning <laughs> because you're really bowing to the to the their purification what they've done with their hearts and minds so it was a real honor to be able to pay respects to both Ajahn Anand and Ajahn Ganha um because you see the life that they live is so virtuous and the, how they're dedicated to helping people and how they do it you know completely from their goodness without any you know the only economy they have is goodness and kindness and tenderness that's all they have they can't offer you know what they offer you the priceless dharma there was one time when a elderly woman from the village came and she puttered up on her motorcycle everybody rides a motorcycle in thailand it's absolutely hair raisingly frightening because people drive down the middle of the road and out, they just nobody looks and they go about 90 miles an hour and people are getting killed all the time and anyway this woman puttered up and she told Ajahn Anand how her son basically had taken her life savings he was a crook he kind of gambled it away on wine women and song and she had nothing left and she didn't know what to do and you know to see Ajahn Anand's response you know just taking in that that dukkha that truth of her life you know an old woman the sun ripped her off you know it's an awful story right 
And he listened, and, and, and he said, you know, that she said, should I see him? Should I, you know, how should I handle it? And he said, yes, you should see him. And basically, she had nothing more to lose. He'd taken everything. And then he asked her, you know, did she have enough food? And she said, yes. And, you know, did, could she stay where she lived? And he said, yes. And he said, well, you know, if you are hungry, you come here. And if you need medicine and you don't have it, I'll give it to you. You know, um, if you're lonely, you come here. You, you, you know, so that was her refuge. You know, she's probably been feeding him. He's been at that monastery for 20 years. He's, she's probably, been, I don't know, but my guess is she's probably fed him for 20 years in support of the monastery. And, uh, you know, she, he, with his great heart of loving kindness, listening to this story, which was so sad, you know, and just making sure that he, she knew that she could always come to the monastery and that he would help her if, if she needed it. And when I switched, by the way, I was the only woman for most of six months. Uh, there was another woman who came for about a month. And then I switched monasteries to Ajahn Ganha, who uh, is another esteemed disciple of Ajahn Chah. And there was, he actually has a separate, uh, under the auspices of his main monastery, there's also a women's section where he had nine, nine nuns. And I was so happy to be with other women. No one spoke English, but <laughs> didn't want to quibble. My Thai is pretty lousy, but I was able to get by considering I was silent most of the time but um, you know again being with Ajahn Ganha and um, being with these nuns who one nun who lived to the left of me has been a nun since she was 15 she's about 33 and then the nun to the right of me is uh, 50 around my age and she's been a nun since she's 20 and you know the, radi- the collective radiance of these nine nuns was just you know just blow my mind. You know they're just you know after being with just monks and monks and monks are given so much respect and women are kind of you know there to serve them. But then to be in the monastery with this group of nuns who you know we would bow down to and treat very similarly in terms of the respect they were afforded and certainly deserved. It was such a honor and pleasure. Um, and that they really knew nothing of the world, you know, that their whole life had been just dedicated to the Dharma. You know, the, the, the monks kind of come and go, and sometimes the monks would just ordain for a rains retreat. You know, and by and Thailand is so respectful of monasticism that um, by law, an employer has to let you off and give you your job back. Kind of like a maternity leave law. <laughs> you, know, you can't fire somebody for going, taking maternity leave. You can't fire somebody for uh, ordaining for the rains retreat. So monks come and go, but this group of women was just amazing to practice with these people who, you know, most of them had dedicated their whole life. The head nun had been a nun for 40 years under Ajahn Chad. Her radiance just like, you know, blew me away. So one of the rituals that I just wanted to share with you was that when you dedicate merit, and every day, you know, we dedicate merit um, to either the people who would help feed us, or to family and friends, to the teacher, to the community of monks and nuns, uh, to um, you know, and to all, basically, to all beings everywhere. That the the wish that all beings are ultimately affected by the fruits of our practice. As pathetic as I felt mine was sometimes, I still, if I had anything to offer, you know, be my guest, <laughs> take it. Um, 
there was another category that I learned about that I just fell in love with, which is called Jiao Kumnai Win, which is a category of beings that anybody you have a karmic debt with, from an ant, you know, an ant that you may have stepped on inadvertently, to somebody in any kind of past life that you may have wronged, Jiao Kumnai Win, that you also hope that your your the dedication of your merit goes to just purifying that karmic debt to any being that you may have cut off in a parking space, you know, that you may have cheated or harmed in any life, you know, in any this life today or, you know, hundreds of lives ago. So that was one of the rituals I used to love including in my practice and I encourage you to Jaukamnai went to anybody to any being, any sentient being in any of your lifetimes that you have hurt or harmed in any way, may the dedication of the merit, you know, purify that that karmic debt, so you may ultimately free yourself from that bondage. And as you work on uprooting greed, hatred, and delusion in your life, so. I hope that I, I could go on and on, but it's, I want to leave some time for questions. I hope that gives you a little bit of a glimpse um, into life in the monastery. Every monastery is different, but they're all the same in the, t- in the sense that your intention in going there is to uh, make a dedicated effort to practice under the guidance of the teacher to do what he or she says in terms of um, what is expected in terms of your practice to report what's going on in your practice and and follow the guidance that's offered and to uh, you know help in the ways that you can to to run the monastery and to fulfill the virtues of the, that the Buddha laid down uh, for a harmonious life in the Sangha and that I hope that any merit that I have gained from that could be shared with you and to all beings and to Jao Kam Nai Wen, you know, all over the planet, because wouldn't that be wonderfully nice if that every day everybody asked not only to share their merit, which apparently has incomparable merit, just to give up the selfish mind for that one second to offer it on behalf of anybody, but to offer it on behalf of you know anybody we've hurt or harmed for you know through the ages of our our our, our being you know um, so I on behalf of all of our Win, I hope that this has been helpful. Thank you very much. So, are there any questions? Yes. Um, after a year of this uh, practice, how has it changed your routine coming back? Then? Like what fundamental changes uh, have you made as a result? Uh, I feel very humble in terms of. Um, the task it is to train train the mind and the heart, and uh, I feel that humility has uh, changed the judgments I've had towards myself and towards other people 
for being anything other than what they are. That they're, you know, we're all in this mess called samsara, you know, and we're all deluded by the, you know, the illness of self-view. And when you get a real whiff of that, <laughs> you're living in a monastery, just looking at, you know, the sick mind, you know, I think it, it's changed me in that I feel more patient and more, you know, this is the way it is. And there's no rest to it unless we uproot it. You know, so I, I get less aggravated. It's more like, well, you know, business as usual. Do you feel that it's um, something that would be sustainable? I mean, when you're in a monastery like that, you're in a setting that promotes that. Right. And then you come back and you, you carry that with you for hopefully a long time, but then you have the same forces working, the same distractions yeah. and pushes and pulls of, of modern life. Um, I see how hard it is to, to do. I understand why there's monasteries. Yeah, I have more. I think it's what we're trying to do in the West is infinitely more difficult, infinitely, because we don't have the supports. We don't have the daily reminders. And we don't have the renunciation that's required. That you know, we have so many. Our, our senses are kind of always leak, leaking, you know, because we're always, you know, when you can only eat one meal a day, and you know, there's no, no you're, you're constantly, you can't look in a mirror. You're, you know, you, you have to wear, you know, you wear a black skirt and a white shirt. You know, you, you're not doing things to, and you're taking cold showers. You know, there's. You know, there's something to the strength of renunciation that that inspires your practice. And here, you just feel you feel it leaking out more. You know, because you can always get distracted. Um, so it's much, you know what we're trying to do in the West is just much harder. It takes much longer to get the same practice. So my, both my teachers said at least five hours a day is what they would recommend, which is very humbling because we're certainly not instructed to do that. You know, it's like 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes at night, you know, maybe an hour, you know, but they're very, it's very unsentimental. If you want to achieve stability of mind as a householder, you should practice five hours a day. So it's, you know, I could feel getting sucked back in. I could feel the, you know, the, the, the power, the force, the seduction. I hope to go back. That was the second part of that question. Would you be taking longer retreats as a result of this experience? Maybe not quite that long, but two months or... That, that's, yeah. Um, by the way, another thing I wanted to share with you is that, you know, for them, because they make, you know, they've made lifetimes of commitments to liberate themselves, it's like, you know, being there for almost a year, it's like, what's your hurry? You know, they, they think it's weird that America, like you say, we go on 10-day retreats or two-month retreats. But, that doesn't even compute to them. I mean, that, it sounds weird. You know, because their life is a retreat, and it's, you know, it's a it's a monastic setting. So when you say, "Well, you go and you go on a retreat for ten or twenty or thirty days," it's like, "Well, that's nice, but like, when do you meditate? You know, it's like, when? How else do you live your life?" And it's so it's they don't quite get the the Western system. You know, because we don't have a monastic, it's, it's not a monastic practice, it's a lay practice. So, you know, they kind of feel sorry for us. 
because it's going to take you much longer. You know, it's very practical, their, their, their view of it. You know, this is what the Buddha said you need to do to get liberated. So if you don't do it his way, it's going to just take you a lot longer. And of course, we don't have the liberated beings here to do that too, you know, because we have more lay teachers. So it's, it's harder for them to understand the way we do it. So when you say, if I go back for two months, and I will, you know, I'll take what I can get, you know, I will also feel from them, not just the reality of, you know, this is kind of sad, you know, that this is all you can do. Because they think that nothing's more important, that this is what you should do. If, if you're lucky enough to hear the Buddhist teachings, then why would you do anything else? Do you know what I mean? That, that's their point of view. They understand, you know, making a living and families and stuff, but if you don't have a family, they tell you don't start one. You know, they're, they're not into, you know, they don't think, you know, monks and marriage, that, that doesn't compute. You know, they don't... They don't get married? Monks don't get married. Well, you can be married and, and ordained, but if you're not married, they'll tell you not to get married. They'll tell you to liberate your, your mind instead. So it's not that, you know, they don't grieve if you get married, but it's, it's a missed opportunity. I mean, they're very, it's very, as I said, it's, it's, um, it's very un, uh, unadorned, unsentimental. You know, the, if you can, you should practice in this lifetime to liberate yourself from greed, hatred, and delusion. That's what you should do. If you don't, that's okay. I mean, you, there's other things you can do, like make offerings, and be generous to the monks and nuns, and visit the temple, and you know, and dedicate merit, and and practice for you know, and uh, ask for to purify your karma. This you know, and, and to uphold the precepts. There's things you can do. But if you really want to get out of the system, you know, why would you be a householder? You know, if you really want to beat the system. So yeah, I will go, but you know, I could. It's a little unnerving to go because they thought they thought my my time there, which I thought was massive, and you know, you know, just you know. Were you there for a year? Mm, ten months. Um, you know, enormous. They think it's like, what's your hurry? Mm-hmm. So it's a diff- whole different. Do you know what I mean? It's a whole whole different thing. Yeah. So do they believe that the lay people will not break the cycle? Just as much, much harder. Because you don't have the container. You can do it. I mean, any, anything's possible, but it's much harder if you don't have the container to do it in a monastic setting under the guidance of a teacher, you know, living a renunciate life, because renunciation is a big part of it. And it's hard to do. So on the moon days, on the full moon, the quarter moons, the three quarter moon, and the, and the um, new moon, so once a week people come to the monastery and practice and eat one meal a day. And they stay and, they, you know, we'll put on black and white, which is a uh, layperson's statement that you're on eight precepts. And they will do that once a week. And uh, that's what the Buddha encouraged. No sexual relations on that day. Stay very quiet and inner. So there is that support for lay people, for sure. But it's not the fast track. No, there's distractions as a layperson. Right. So... The only one meal a day? Only one meal a day. That's all you get, sir. In the monastery, just one meal a day. 8, 8.30 in the morning or so. That's it. And then in the afternoon, you can have tea, usually. 
Um, there's some allowables, like um, you're allowed to have prunes and dark chocolate, which is kind of hot, hard in Thailand because it's about a thousand degrees, everything melts. And uh, cheese you're allowed, but it's not a dairy country, so you get this kind of like Velveeta cheese that would survive a nuclear war. <laughs> um, so you get and some hard candies sometimes, but no meals, no, no solid food at night, a- afternoon, but the meals usually at eight or eight thirty. Yeah. Rainbow, by the way, you and I have. Yeah. Yes. Hi. Nice to see you. Yeah. Ditto. I'm interested as a woman what your experience was like there. And you said some things about being separate and being at the end of the line. How, how could you determine whether you were being treated that way because you were Western or lay? Or oh, I wasn't at the end of the I wasn't part of a line because, you know, it's the monks. Sure. And then, then you're a lay person. You, I mean, you eat after them. Oh, I just meant metaphorically, not. Oh, at the end of the line, yeah. Um, as a female or as a yeah. person. Well, it's 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 that's a whole talk, really. It's a very complicated question, um, because the Buddha said some pretty aggravating things, like you know, a, 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 a nun, an ordained nun for a hundred years, right? That's a long time, hundred years. Um, is lower than a monk who's been ordained for one day. You know, so. Uh, you know, and that was the way at Ajahn Ganha's monastery. You know, it was. You can have a ten-year-old monk, a Samanera, and you know he would still be higher than this nun that was practiced for forty years. So there was a lot of aggravating things. But when I was with Ajahn Ganha, I could tell you this: you know, the women, the women were, the nuns were afforded tremendous respect. That he trained the nuns in a really magnificent way. He certainly gave me, you know, utmost support and encouragement in terms of um, telling me that. There was no difference, and an enlightened mind was an enlightened mind, and um, so, and I, you know, I saw that in practice, you know, the way his his nuns were. So that limited some of the aggravation, but you know, it's it's aggravating that the the respect afforded the monastic community is very different than the respect afforded the nuns community. That's the way it is. As I said, it's a very long conversation. Very long conversation. But, mm. I was wondering what kind of guidance you got from the teachers. And did, did you get you know, instruction? It was more or less No, I, I, got, I got very uh, ongoing instruction and guidance from um, my teachers who uh, I'm so grateful to and who I love very much, and who I feel very indebted to, um, because they were so kind. You know, they were so kind that no matter what my mind was doing um, and what mess of a state it was in, you know, it was just okay. And there's an expression in Thai, it's tamada, normal. You know, tamada. So, you know, the chelases, the defilements, the greed, hatred, and delusion kind of pumping out of me, you know, just and the boredom and the loneliness and the, you know, the irritations of, you know, being in a tropical country and the discomfort and, you know, the endless complaining mind. You know, just tamada, just, you know, complaining. You know, it's just, they, there was you know, no judgment, you know, just ha- how do you rest in it? So I just felt totally loved by them. 
and not personal love, you know, but just totally love the understanding that the dukkha of just having a mind and a body, you know. So it was very, very encouraging, and that that they and they gave me lots of directions in my walking practice and my sitting practice, and really thinking about just the skeleton and thinking about um, different mantras and. Um, they really encouraged me to do a lot of chanting um, as a way of calming the mind and stabilizing the mind. So, you know, I felt very held. And, um, you know, when because they weren't judgmental towards me, you know, it relaxed my own judgmentalness towards myself and that critic, the inner critic, which is, you know, so brutal. And, uh, you know, they were just, that, that's what minds do. And they kind of torture you, you know, see it. So it was very, very helpful, very helpful, even though I could tell you it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And, um, but I, you know, I understand, of course it's the hardest thing. You're trying to, you're trying to get out of bondage, you know, <laughs> that's what it is. You're, you're in, you know, that's what we're, we're enslaved. And that's why it's called sansara, you know, the endless, you know, imprisonment of living in the sensory world. And uh, so we're trying to do a very, 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 very difficult thing. So as I lost my romance about how, you know, somehow I make a lot of progress or, you know, do whatever, just that's gone. As I said, I feel very humble and very grateful. You know, I feel very grateful to Gil as my teacher, to Ajahn Anand, to Ajahn Ganha, you know, to all, to any being, you know, who's really made a dent and who's not only made a dent, but has, you know, gotten out of, out of the system of samsara, gotten out of it, you know, just, wow. So I, f- I feel very grateful and feel very um, appreciative of the efforts and, you know, they... You know, any moment of mindfulness is a moment of freedom. So you begin to have very low expectations. You know, <laughs> just this one breath, this one bite, this one you know lifting, moving, placing, and that's you know okay, that was a moment of freedom. And some days, just you know, you get through the day. It's about as good as you can say. But you did it with as much mindfulness as you could, with as much virtue as you could. You know. You've given the mess that we're all in, <laughs> and it is a mess. You know, if you stop to look at the mind, it's it's pretty brutal. So, I have a great great respect and you know, deep appreciation, as I said, for the sangha. You know, when you when you bow to the Buddha, you bow to the Dharma, you bow to the sangha. You know, you're bowing to people who who are making the effort to to practice the monastic sangha, the lay sangha. You know, when you bow, it's, if you've looked at your mind for five minutes, you realize it's something to bow to because not many people are doing it if you look on the whole planet. So, uh, you know, every day when I practice and I do, you know, bring up the images of my teachers, uh, I do it to inspire myself that there are beings on the planet that, are, that have done it. And because of their teachers, and all the way back to the Buddha, you know. And that any, you know, if there's there's big enlightenment, there's you know there's enlightenment. You never forget it, you know. 
you're out of the system, where there's little enlightenment, which is just this breath and knowing that. So, um, yeah. So, um, do you see yourself uh, having a different occupation now coming back? Well, it's pretty, yeah, that's a good question. I don't really have an occupation right now. Um, I, I'm kind of looking for a new life. I'm not sure what it's going to be, but I don't want to see, I don't want to be a psychologist because I'm not an expert. You know what I mean? I don't want to hold myself. I don't want to do that to myself or anybody else, actually. Well, I, I've, done, I, I've done many different things as a psychologist. The last thing I did was I had a management consulting company, but I don't feel very authoritative or anything these days. I'd probably do something more rank and file. You know, I don't, I, you know, I, I used to laugh with Ajahn Ganha. Jitapate is the Thai word for psychologist. So I would call him Jitapate Yai, which is a big psychologist. And I'd be Jitapate Lek. You know, he, somebody who's really understands greed, hatred, and delusion and has beat it. They're they're the psychologist, not me, with my with my little thinky PhD. You know what I mean? Which is from the mind. There's a, in the heart. So I. I, I it's, I have a completely different view of psychology and who I think is a psychologist. Do you know what I mean? They're the real thing. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I'm not putting down my PhD, but the book knowledge I have doesn't, you know, it's not what we're, we're why we're sitting here looking at our in breath and our breath. You know what I mean? That's, that's a whole different thing. What do you do? What am I, I don't know. I, don't know. I just got back. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's very likely I'll go back again. It's very likely I won't. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, maybe I can. I don't know yet. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I have to. I, I have to. I'm, I pray every day that something valuable that I can help people. But I, I don't think I'll do it in the traditional way, if you know what I mean. Um, I don't want to be set up as a doctor. It just doesn't feel right. I mean, if I have to be, I will. But that's not what I'm looking at, looking for. So I, I don't know. If you have any ideas, please email me. <laughs> I don't know. I, I you know, I, I don't know. As I said, I'm just, it's, it's still, I'm fresh off the boat, as they say, from... Um, and you know, I probably will go back and for another six months or so before I start looking, although I'm trying to plant seeds now, what I want to do. But um, maybe, you know, maybe I'll do the same thing. I, I doubt it, but maybe I will. I, I just don't know. And I, and I kind of like not knowing because I'm open to something unusual. You know what I mean. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned wedding wedding bands. I'm assuming. I'm married. Yeah. And um, how did you work that deal? Being ten months. Well, um, I was. I'm very lucky because the year before I was uh, teaching at a university in Thailand, and um, my husband came with me. He's retired. He's a retired professor, and. Uh, 
the university job didn't work out, but we made some very good friends. So he actually was in Thailand most of the time, working on a book, staying with some friends. And um, I got to speak to him almost every day. And I saw him a couple times, about three times during that 10 months. So um, he wants to go back as well. Not, not to the monastery, though. <laughs> to the monastery. Although he's, he knows both my teachers and he's very supportive and he's also a student of Gill's. Um, but the monastic life is a little too hard for him, which I totally appreciate. Thank you. So I feel, I feel very lucky. If you ever have an opportunity to go to Asia um, and to meet these people, of which there are many in Asia, um, I hope that really my deepest wish for you is that you can do that because you know just to, to be around these people is, and to feel their metta, you know, to feel what it's like to be in the presence of someone with a purified mind is really a beautiful opportunity in life. So I hope. My deep wish for you is that you can feel that and have that with you because it never, never really leaves. You know, when you get a whiff of that, it's just. So. On a practical level, um, I would expect that for Westerners, um, only having one meal a day would be a problem. There were so many more difficult things in my mind that you know, and, uh, you know that. Well, first of all, it's hot, so you don't really need a lot of food, um, and too much food just you see the the cause and effect, the karma, because it makes you very you know kind of languish and you want to sleep more, and so um, you know you can have hot, like tea or hot chocolate, and, you know if you're hungry or you know it's it's. It, that wasn't the hardest part. It wasn't the hardest part for me. I slept. If I was really miserable, I slept. You know, I used sleep as a kind of comfort, even though it was on the floor. Um, but you're not encouraged to do that. But I would if I needed to. You know, because uh, I didn't. I couldn't overeat. <laughs> couldn't use my standard defenses. Um, so you kind of make do with what you can. Uh, you know, you figure it out. But it's on a mat or anything, or? this. I brought my cushion. <laughs> I did, but mo- it, there's no mats. I mean, there's a mat, but it's not a cushion. It's just a grass mat. So you had. I I brought my own mat, but there's no mats. At the, I mean, there's no cushions in the monastery. They just sit on a grass mat. Not me. <laughs> I did bring my that one creature comfort. Um, it got cold at night in like just, uh, January and February, but mostly I left. It was about 110. I left at the end of April, and um, it doesn't get cold. No, I mean they think when it gets 75, it's cold, and everyone walks around going, "Now mock, now mock," and it's so funny because it's 70. You can barely, you can finally breathe, you know. <laughs> they think it's freezing. In the winter, you do. January and February, definitely, you need blankets. But um, during the rainy season and during, you know, the rest of the time, you just have a sheet, like a cotton sheet. No blanket. Believe me, no blanket. You know, everything sticks to you because it's all moist. You know, it's tropical. Um, 
the food, by the way, was interesting because you know I I made a whole career out of it. I was a psychologist for Weight Watchers. I've written a book on it. You know, God only knows I have a million food obsessions, but there's something actually very uh, liberating about just one meal a day because you you see how much you see how it's conditioned. You know, the boredom condition. It's not hunger most of the time. And if you're hungry, you had a glass of hot chocolate or if there was cheese or chocolate around. You know, it, it was and it's bearable. If you're hungry, you're hungry. Well, you know, in a forest, you're kind of schlepping around, you know, it's, yeah. And it's hot, so you don't, it's not aerobic. Uh, but walking, I did a lot of walking meditation. But in terms of, like, pumping, no, not like that. Sure, it's very hard because um, you know that's our that's the the avert the mind that's filled with aversion. You know, you just want to get rid of anything that gets. I can see where it is. Yeah. From the early life, you know, it was like eliminate, clean the house, and everything out, and it's very hard to reverse that. It is. It is, and that's why the um, the impeccable. Sila, the, the the morality that that you're asked to uphold in the monastery, you know, is so important because, you know, it asks you to be very very conscious and to really see those desires when they come up. You just want to like annihilate it, you know, and and you you don't or you can't or whatever whatever the motivation is. You know, you begin to have compassion for, you know, if the Jews don't like the Muslims and the Muslims don't like the Christians, you see the same kind of, you see the same energies. You don't like the bug. You know, you just see how it's all interconnected and that the practice, the small practices of not eliminating what's uncomfortable or ugly or, or, you know, undesirable helps Purify the mind of when you see it on a much larger level. And when you can't act on your greed, you can't eat or you can't, you know, do the things to distract you, you see with that, you know, the this, this strong, how, you know, the, the, the grip that it has on your heart and how painful it is. What about, did you have flies though? I mean, I had everything. But you know. Yeah. I never got sick, but you know, it's it was a lot of unhygienic things. They were immaculate monasteries, by the way, immaculate. Um, And to the you know, but you know, you're getting alms food. You don't know how you don't know how clean or dirty it is. Um, You drink bottled water, uh, and there's the bug situation. I mean, it's just you know, it just blew my mind. You know, the things I saw, you know, the colors, the sizes, the swarms, the, you know, the, the, 
the army. I mean, it was just incredible, you know, and a lot of it was inconvenient and, you know, that, that impulse to get it out of my way or whatever it was, you know, very strong. When you said arms, it was the people giving the food to the monks. Mm-hmm. And that's what you ate. Yeah, that's what everybody eats. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of um, tremendous amount of rice because rice is considered a very virtuous thing to give um, and then they give little bags of food like if you take if you take a baggie they'd fill it with curry or noodles or vegetables um, and uh, stir fry stir fried things and uh, desserts like uh, they eat a lot of like jellied things like um fruits that's like in a square jelly thing they make um, yogurt drinks donuts um, this is a rice noodles things like that I don't know so would you eat until you were full or was there like portion control I just would fill my bowl yeah. fill it with yeah, I, 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 is it okay to go back for seconds or was there yeah. like um, well, the monks don't because it gets kind of rolled by them and you just take, you fill your bow. For me, I had all the leftover and I had everything there so I could do what I wanted. But, um, you know, I... Yeah, I, you know, I ate a lot, but I, you know, a lot of times I just, I, I, it's hard to describe that I just, sometimes like the food just made me sick, you know what I mean? It's just, I wasn't hungry really. You know, I was just dealing with some emotional upheaval and, you just really understand what the Buddha meant that you you don't eat. It's not and the eating is pleasurable. He doesn't say not to feel the and enjoy it, but it really is to sustain the holy life. That's what he said. That that's the focus of your attention. You know, it's just, so it's not because it's your favorite food or you don't. It's not, you're not involved in like do I like it or don't like it. Or, there's, there's always enough. There's always plenty. So that wasn't the problem of worrying about it be enough. It was more. Um, needing to do it to fuel yourself for the day. So, and I didn't have a lot of hunger. I just wanted my, I just wanted a calm mind. That was my hunger. Oh, I didn't eat. I didn't eat just rice. It was always curries, vegetables. I didn't eat any meat. I didn't. I didn't. I had a vegetarian diet the whole time. Was it nutritious? You know, I survived it. You didn't feel bad. I felt bad, but I don't. I wouldn't say it was because of my diet. You know, there's tons of tofu, tons of tofu, and tons of fish and tons of meat. I didn't eat any of that. But um, yeah, you know, you realize that. You know, and I know from just being in the food, being in the food industry, you know, made a whole profession out of it. You know, we make such a big deal out of, you know, balance this and nutritious, you know, it's, they're not, they, it's, that's not the way it is. It's like you appreciate food on a very different level. There's always enough. There's always vegetables. There's always, you know, protein. And, and you, there's something sweet usually, but, it, you know, you, it's not, it's not so narcissistic as we make it. You know, it's such a, you know, my diet and my food and my, you know, needs and my, you know, unique, Forget it. Forget it. <laughs> it just don't, it's just, it's, it's not a part of their thinking. 
the poorest people gave food. You know, the poorest, you know, the, everybody gives to the monks. This is a very beautiful thing, you know. The people will give their portion of the food to monks first. They'll, they'll give the best to the monks before they'll eat for themselves. Louis, I'm sorry that we're... Okay. So, again, I want to thank you for inviting me, and I also want to particularly thank all my teachers, including Gil, for helping me along and us along. I wish you all well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.